Please turn with me in your Bibles to the 8th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. 8th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. As we come to the last section here in Mark 8, although we won't finish the last paragraph until next week, the last section, we finally begin to see Jesus' disciples coming close to really understanding who exactly Jesus is. You notice coming close. Of course, not only does Peter speak up confessing that Jesus is the Christ, he also then takes issue with Jesus' teaching about what's right around the corner. In our passage today, we'll look at Jesus' plain teaching to his disciples that he is a king, but a king who must go to the cross. And then next week, we will see that Jesus also taught the crowd along with his disciples that if anyone wants to follow him, they must go to the cross too. So these two paragraphs really connect well to one another. And next week we're going to have to remember what the one today was really focusing on in order to get the power and the, and the impact from the last paragraph in, in chapter 8 as well. But if you would please stand if you are able. I'm going to read both paragraphs. The first half we'll look at today, as I said, beginning at verse 27 in Mark 8. And go through the first verse of chapter 9. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, and the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. And he called to him the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? 
For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, Jesus and his disciples now travel from Bethsaida, which is on the north coast of the Sea of Galilee, where he had just healed the blind man. And they go about 25 to 30 miles north, straight north, to Caesarea Philippi, which is at the foot of Mount Hermon, overlooking the whole north valley into the Jordan River Valley. One of the sons of Herod the Great, Herod Philip, had rebuilt this ancient city in honor of Tiberius Caesar and himself. Get the name? Caesarea Philippi. He did put Caesar's first. This was the Philip whose wife had left him to marry his brother Herod Antipas, who imprisoned and executed John the Baptist. There's a lot more of these connections, but I think we better stop right there. It gets pretty complicated. Somewhere during this trip, Jesus asked his disciples the crucial question. That question, who do you say that I am? But to get these guys warmed up for that question, Jesus first asked them, who do people say that I am? And at that point, the usual answers were given. And we've seen this before in Mark. John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and some say he's one of the prophets. But all three of these answers reveal the inadequate view the people of Israel still had about Jesus. Very inadequate, very shallow. John the Baptist had played a preparatory role for Christ's coming. Elijah returning or being revived was actually a common Jewish concept of that day. But he too was only a forerunner of the Messiah. The idea that Jesus was just one of the prophets reflects a very low view of Christ. Because that idea is really saying that Jesus is just one in a long line of prophets in Israel's history. Isn't it ironic, though, that the demons that Jesus cast out of people recognized him and said so publicly? Hope you caught that. But no one caught on or even echoed that particular observation. But to the most important question, what do you say, who do you say that I am, Peter answers without skipping a beat, which should not be a surprise. But what he said, speaking for himself and the others, was surprising. 
You are the Christ. Peter uses the word Christ, which translates the Hebrew Messiah, and it means the anointed one of God. It includes the ideas of being chosen by God, of being set apart to God's service, and being empowered by God to accomplish the task that was assigned to him. It also assumed a very special meaning toward the end of the Old Testament period, referring to the ideal king anointed and empowered by God to do what? To deliver his people and establish his righteous kingdom. In other words, this word came to mean the anointed one, the Messiah, the king to end all kings, the king who's going to put everything right. That was the common understanding. But also notice that Peter uses the definite article here, you are the Christ, the Messiah. Notice that Jesus did not correct Peter. Jesus accepted this title. And also notice, and some of you may realize this and are wondering, that Jesus' affirmation to Peter at this point that you know about is not here in Mark. Where is it? It's in Matthew. In Matthew 16, verse 17 through 19, we read something else that Jesus said what he said to Peter. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So, the question is obviously, why didn't Mark put this in his account? Well, remember where Mark got his information to write this book. Mainly from Peter's eyewitness accounts. And perhaps because it was Peter who was Mark's source in writing this gospel, maybe Peter humbly made no mention of it. We'll never know for sure, but this has to be a part of the answer. Now that says something. And we'll see as we get through the rest of this book what we already know is true about Peter But did he learn anything through these years? Did he finally understand completely who Jesus was? And what did that do to his personality and his demeanor and to his heart? See, he didn't want this affirmation that Jesus gave him in Mark's gospel. 
And he might not have even mentioned it to Mark. And that's kind of interesting to think about because there's some implications there about how God works with us. Now, while Peter's confession revealed real insight from God the Father, which we found out here in Matthew, into the nature of of who Christ is and what his mission was, his concept of Jesus' Messiahship was still far from being anywhere near complete. So Jesus strictly charged them all to tell no one about him. Does that surprise you still? How many times have we seen that so far? When Jesus cast the demons out, don't tell anybody who I am, because they were the only ones who were calling him the name of the divine God. Don't tell anybody this. Um, The disciples still needed instruction before they would be given permission to proclaim this without restraint. Why? Because they weren't fully informed yet. Which means their discernment was still lacking. Which means if they got these buzzwords down and went wild with it, what would be concerning about that? The simple fact that Jesus was well aware of the powerful forces aligning against him. He knew that the leadership of the, of the religion of Judaism were trying to destroy him. He knew they were aligning together to get that accomplished. And he didn't want a forced confrontation yet. He didn't want a forced confrontation brought on by who we could saw, say some wild and crazy apostles who now knew what Jesus' title was and they were going to just communicate that every chance they got all over the place. It's completely the opposite of how we think today, is it not? But he had a timeline. He knew when the time would be perfect. And he was doing what was necessary to prove who he was. But he did tell his men now. He told them who he was. Then Jesus launches into this teaching session that literally both appalled and shocked his disciples. And we don't get how big the surprise was. But we're going to try to get that understanding this morning. Jesus lets them know in no uncertain terms, Yes, I am the king. But I'm not like the king that you were expecting. That's the whole message. And he starts explaining it. Jesus now teaches his apostles for the first time that he will be a suffering king here in verses 31 and 32. And he repeats this two more times for them here in Mark. In chapter 9, verse 31, he teaches them again. 
And in chapter 10, verse 32 through 34, he says the same thing again. Three times before he actually has to go to the cross. They still didn't ever quite get it. They had to see it happen first. They had to see the risen Lord to get it. But Jesus is laying the groundwork, is he not? So here we have Peter who made this confession. Sounded like he knew who he was. But this is not the king that Peter or any of these guys expected. The question is, do we do the same thing? So, Jesus is going to let them know now two things here at the end of chapter 8. First, what being the promised Messiah really entails. That's what we're going to cover today. What does it mean that he's the promised Messiah? And secondly, what it requires for you and I to be identified with him, which is the last paragraph we read. Those two go together which makes it really powerful. So Jesus begins by saying, the Son of Man must suffer. Great beginning. Just what you wanted to hear. Here's the Messiah. The first thing he tells us is the Son of Man must suffer. Now, usually the first thing that we hear about this title that we just saw Jesus give himself, the Son of Man, is that Jesus is telling us that he's human. That's a good start, but this specific title means much, much more than that. In Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, the Old Testament prophet, there's a reference to one like the Son of Man, who is a divine messianic figure who comes with the angels to do what? To make everything right. To put everything right. But he's a divine messianic figure who comes with the angels. But when we read what Jesus says in the next two words of our text, in chapter 8, verse 31, we can get confused. Because Jesus says the Son of Man must... Suffer. And that doesn't sound like he's coming to put everything right. That sounds wrong. And we all know many Old Testament prophecies about a mysterious servant of the Lord who suffers. But what we've got to realize is that no one before Jesus had ever associated those texts with the hope of the Messiah. Never before this very moment had anyone in Israel connected suffering with the Messiah. The idea that the Messiah would suffer just seemed to make no sense at all. Because the Messiah was supposed to defeat evil and injustice and make everything right in the world. So how could he defeat evil by suffering and dying? 
That just seems incomprehensible. But Jesus uses a word here that doesn't leave any wiggle room for any other way to see it. In fact, the way Jesus says this actually adds to the force and the weightiness of what he's trying to get across. He says, the Son of Man must suffer and die. In other words, Jesus is planning to die. He is doing this voluntarily. Jesus is not making a prediction that this will happen. And Peter is ticked. But the other guys are ticked too. Peter just is the voice. Jesus is saying that he came to die and that he intends to die. And there's something else here that we must make sure we feel the force of. Jesus also means that everything in this list is a necessity. Jesus did not say that the Son of Man would suffer. He said the Son of Man must suffer, and that's a big difference. The word must modifies and controls this whole sentence. And why is that important? We just said it, because everything in this list is a necessity. And to really get the sense of this in English, we've got to read it this way. Jesus must suffer. Jesus must be rejected. Jesus must be killed. Jesus must be resurrected. He has just laid it out crystal clear, plainly, for all his disciples right here. Now, do you understand why this is so significant? Because what he's saying is not just I've come to die, but I have to die. It's absolutely necessary that I suffer, am rejected, die, and am resurrected. Peter is furious. There's no other way to say it. He rightly understood what Jesus said, that he came to die and that he intends to die. He got that. And he is so ticked about that that he cannot digest or understand or hear anything else. You ever been like that? You're so mad and so angry that somebody would have to knock you out with a two-by-four before you'd even begin to shake your head and go, okay, what do you mean? He couldn't get past his anger. which gives you great insight into the next paragraph. Because Jesus says, if you're following me, if you want to be identified with me, you've got to lay it down. You've got to die to yourself. You have no right to be angry if I'm sovereignly who I say I am. 
everything that I let happen to your life or that happens in your life is for a reason that you may not understand. So at some point, you've got to throw that down. Because not many of us experience righteous anger. Mostly, it's selfish anger. We don't like the way it's going. The disciples didn't like the way this was going. What had they been dreaming? What had they been hoping in? Why did they throw down their what they were doing for a living and follow him? They wanted to be a part of the Messiah coming back and ruling. And they couldn't believe he picked them. Fishermen? Tax collector? What an honor. He's chosen us. We've seen him do all these miracles. And we're his right-hand guys. And you also don't get it. And we know that every one of the apostles, except for John, died a martyr's death. Do you see what he's getting at? You have to be willing to lay down your right of expectation of anything but knowing me and serving me if you follow me. That's next week. First, he's got to get this across. Now, Peter has no comprehension at all then about it being absolutely necessary that Jesus must die. This is going to be something that Jesus has been laying out for them, but it's something that won't be clear until after the resurrection. If Jesus would have said something like, hey guys, I'll fight as best I can, but I know I'm going to be defeated. Peter might have been able to swallow that as heartbreaking and troubling as it would have been. And we see a little glimpse of that, don't we, on the night when he was betrayed? A certain person's ear got whacked off. Peter's sword. It takes a while for all of us to get this. But Peter could not swallow that intending to suffer and die had always been Jesus' purpose and plan. Does it help you understand his denial that's coming up? See, it was still in his gut, in his heart. He, he, he just couldn't fathom what this was all about. That's not what he followed Jesus for. It's not what he expected. How about you? Be honest. When you came to Christ, what did you expect initially? Perfect life. All your problems gradually go away. Provision, just when you want it. 
cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We're no different. So that's why Peter took Jesus aside. Do you get that? He took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Most of us are thinking, right then and there, there should have been a lightning bolt from heaven. No. He had to go through these times. Because what was he? Jesus said he'd be the rock. This is the guy that the rest of them looked to. And he had to go through that first. Do you? For your friends, for your family, for your church? Sometimes, yeah, you do. Peter's words then turned from that glorious declaration to satanic, verses 32 and 33. Just for your information, I found this out, thought better share this one. The word rebuke here is used in other places in the Gospels for what Jesus does to demons. I'm not saying that he was possessed. That is not what I'm saying. I'm just saying the word is strong. So Peter is condemning Jesus here using the strongest language possible. He's rebuking Jesus. And let's sum up this scenario. Peter... In our language, he, he was going ballistic. How could he do this right after identifying Jesus as the Messiah? Why do you do it? Why do I do it? Same answer. His whole life, Peter had been told and taught that when the Messiah came, he would defeat evil and injustice by ascending to Israel's throne. In this cultural context, that means that the coming Messiah, in their view, would destroy Rome's rulership over Israel. How in the world could that happen? With great power. Had they seen Jesus be powerful? Oh, yeah. They knew it was possible. And that's what they hooked on to. That's what they wanted That's what they were demanding in their hearts from this man that they were following, who they knew had God's power. They didn't get the plan. But here Jesus is saying, yes, I am the Messiah, the King. But I came not to live but to die. I'm not here to take power. It's going to look like I'm losing it. I'm not here to rule. I'm here to serve. And that's how I'm going to defeat evil and put everything right. What? To be honest, each and every one of us, if we're called to be the Lord's own possession, 
this is what the main lesson in our lives is really all about. Is it not? It's why the title of Paul Tripp's book about marriage is What Did You Expect? Not you get a Christian trophy spouse. Clear sailing from here. We all have to learn this. Every single one of us. Now Jesus, of course, when he hears this, he recognizes that Peter's words and thinking are straight from hell. Aligned with the enemy's purpose of doing what? Keeping Jesus from completing his mission. When did that start? Since the very beginning of time. In Jesus' life, when did this start? Well, there was a certain village where every young baby boy in it was murdered because the king thought that the Messiah was still there. Part of the Christmas story that's not real pretty. God has protected him. God has used the evil of men down through the ages to do exactly what he said would happen. Show man's need and his evil heart so that this man would be seen as God in human flesh, who he was, so that he could accomplish his mission. But when Peter said these words, they were straight from hell. He's, his rebuke of Peter it was intended for all those guys, all the apostles. And it's only Peter's thoughts in this matter, not Peter personally, that Jesus rejects as satanic. If it was you or I, he'd have been gone. You ever wonder why you're not gone You know what you're really like sometimes. Why aren't you just gone? Because your God is faithful and patient with you. And he should scare you to death sometimes because he is all-powerful. But he's also the one who loved you enough to send his own son at great cost, his own life, to accomplish your purchase with his own blood. Put all that together, what a figure we have in Jesus Christ. Sometimes I think an accurate picture of the army following him of believers, we would be on our knees the whole way. At least then we'd know we'd have to depend on him from the power to go one more foot. He's a lot more patient than we can ever dream with us. What he wants is our hearts to belong to him. Jesus then has clearly said in our, this passage today that it's, absolute, it's absolutely necessary that I die. 
The world cannot be renewed. And neither can your life unless I die. You can't know the true purpose of life itself unless I die. You can't even know what real love is unless I die. You can't even know true freedom from your slavery to sin unless I die. You cannot know the sure hope of life after death unless I die. Isn't it obvious that everything in Jesus' mission to save a people from their sin and for himself is at stake if he could not become the sacrifice for sin? If he could not take the Father's condemnation for our sin upon himself? If he could not rise from the dead and prove that his sacrifice for us was accepted by the Father? There would be no hope for us at all, and we would be completely, as the Puritans would say, undone. That's a great way to say it. How close are we, knowing him, to being undone? Because we demand our own way. We demand that our expectations be met. We demand that we be totally comfortable, that things go our way. And when we don't get our way, what happens? We either get so furious that we look in the mirror and we see Peter. Or we get in so much despair that we just disappear and melt. God knows how much we can take. He promises that temptation-wise and every other way. And he will prove himself faithful no matter what situation you may be in. And we should testify to that with one another and in our prayers and when we sing. And when we sing those glorious songs this morning, everyone in here had a different way of looking at that and their own gratitude just rising through the roof here. what it means to glory in our Redeemer, not us. It's a great place to be. All we can say after looking at this, before we get to the very convicting part in the next paragraph, it's probably good we have a week in between. Read it. Next Sunday's Palm Sunday, so it's the beginning of that end of Jesus' life. It's a good way to get ready. Praise God for the work and the faithfulness and the love of Christ. For us undeserving sinners. Next week, what is required for you and I to be identified with the Christ? as our Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, we come to you humbled. We come to you exposed and vulnerable. And yet you still are glad that we come. You've given us this life. You've united us in your Son. 
You've given us a new disposition to love you, to serve you, to get to know you, to hunger and thirst for your righteousness. And we still, we feel like Peter almost every day. We don't like the way you're sanctifying us. We're upset with this or that. We're tired and we just want to get over it. Oh God, we come to you in this needy condition knowing that you've given us hope in Christ, new life, and you have given us the power that's necessary to trust you and to see you work and deliver in all sorts of different situations. It's just so many times, God, the way we expect you to deliver just is not the way you know will work in us. And we want to say that we trust you and that we love you and that we're grateful that you saved us while we were your enemies. Oh God, we're thankful, so thankful that Jesus completed his mission. That he was perfectly holy. That he was completely faithful to accomplish everything necessary to be able to go to the cross and bear our sins. And for your condemnation upon our sin to be thrown out, delivered to him, that he died because of that. And here we are clothed with his righteousness so we can come before your throne of grace and stand before you. Who else can we glory in but him? We love you for delivering us, for giving us purpose and hope. And we pray that this week would bring more and more evidence that we belong to you. Help us understand better. Help us to develop disciplines early on that help keep us pointed towards you. We pray and thank you for the inner work of your spirit in our hearts. We thank you for one another and the ability to to be able to gather in your name. Singing together is a great joy. Praying for one another is a great privilege. It's in Christ's name that we lift these things up. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You're dismissed.